When David conducted his unauthorized census at the end of his life, uh, he was convicted about that. The Bible says his heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said the Lord, to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I've done very foolishly. It's always very foolish to put your trust in men. It's always very foolish. People have wrestled about, what does this mean? Why is this here? What's so bad about a census? He just said it. He put his trust and men, and so the Lord sent a prophet with three sanctions, and I think you're familiar with them. The first, he could have seven years of famine, he could have three months of fleeing from his enemies, or he could have three days of plague. Uh, his response is particularly after what we have to say today. Look at his response. Please, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we have trusted in men. We placed our trust in the strength of men, in the wisdom of men, in the philosophy of men, in the salvation of men, and been failed by them all. So far be it from us to be different from David in this regard, but that we would say we're in great distress, but don't let us fall into the hands of men. We ask like Jeremiah before saying it's of your mercies that, that, that we're not consumed because your compassions fail every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We've seen the faithfulness of men and we want no more of that. We see as Habakkuk says, in wrath remember mercy. Lord, you would have every right to sanction us greatly for, for our massive iniquities, for our bloodshed, our, our indifference towards you and choosing others to reign over us who are not you. But Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. Make right my words this morning and make right our ears to hear that we may receive the word uh, and not just be hearers of the word, deceiving ourselves, but rather doers of the word as is glorifying to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we'll be uh, in Proverbs uh, 28, Proverbs 28, and as we go there, I actually have a, I have a, uh, can't see which way is up on this, which is I think partly by design. I'll let you pass this around. I have a, I have a, uh, a teaching tool this morning. It's by M.C. Escher. Maybe you've heard of him. Give it a gander. Some of you might be familiar with him. He was a graphic artist in the last century. He died in 1972. He was very famous. Let me tell you what he says because this is kind of important. It speaks to who he really was. We adore chaos because we love to produce order, said Mr. Escher. That word is loaded with truth claims. First, that chaos can produce order. That's a truth claim. By the way, that's not a, that's a scientifically, he's a science denier. You won't see that in science. Science will tell you that chaos doesn't produce order, but according to Escher, it does. And he also implies that order is desirable. I would have liked to ask him why without God, without a transcendent source of morality, why is, why is order even desirable? And finally, he argued that of our own volition, apart from transcendent governance, we're capable of producing order. And that is all fallacious. A, a, even art, friends, is incapable of neutrality. And that should be obvious because artists are not neutral. Neither 
doctors or scientists or educators. That should be apparent to us by now. The piece that you have is called Relativity, and it's very much in live and in vogue today. The Proverbs also have truth claims. We see in the Proverbs claims about wisdom and knowledge and justice and prosperity and ethics, but unlike Escher, they make clear distinctions. Everybody doesn't just get a trophy. Both the wise and the foolish are shown to be seeking, hoping, trusting, exerting effort, and the Lord is sanctioning them all. When it comes to wisdom, knowledge, justice, prosperity, truth, ethics, righteousness, and love, there's no question about whether they will be sought, but from whom. Remember that when you're in your apologetic life, when you're dealing with your neighbor, there's no question that your neighbor, your atheistic friends, your, the people on the campus, the, at, the, at the abortion providers, they are seeking these things. From whom are they seeking? And my contention this morning is gonna be that there are only two sources from which you can seek. You can either look for revel, for, to revelation from God, which being specific or general, or you can suppress that revelation and turn to the imaginations of sinners. A critical error has prevailed within Christendom. It's the idea that the Bible is unqualified to speak to certain areas of life. In that vacuum, imaginations of sinners are weaponized. We should know better. We should know better. The Lord Jesus Christ says, apart from me, you could do nothing. From the, a verse that uh, Jason quoted in one of his prayers is that our righteousness as, is as filthy rags. We should know better than to think that we can produce things apart from anything good, apart from the revelation of God. All we can do is defile, profane, reflect darkness, sickness, sorrow, anger, rob, kill, destroy. That's all we are capable of doing, producing chaos. Whatever, and this is very important, friends, whatever area we try to foundate apart from the revelation of God will be the entry, will be the, will be the entry level, will be the entry level drug to removing his authority from everything. Let me make that point. I own my house. Everything in the house belongs to me. I will, you come into my house, you're welcome to come in. I tell you, everything belongs to me, it's all mine. And you say, you know what? And you walk out with my TV. You say, I'm just taking your TV, man. Well, what are you saying? You're saying that I don't own anything because I seem to think that I own everything. Well, Jesus Christ says all authority is given to him in heaven and earth. So when you take something from him, you take everything from him, which is why we say all of Christ for all of life. We can't because when we give up something, we give up everything. A critical area that we've got to get away from is this idea that there's some area of neutrality. So our text, I'll read it. I'll read it twice, it's so short. Those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but such as keep the law contend with them. Again, those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but such as keep the law contend with them. I want you to notice that the law is the standard. That's the standard, according to David, according to Solomon here. The law is the standard, and there are two groups and only two. 
those who forsake the law and those who keep the law. How do you know those who forsake the law? They praise the wicked. How do you know those who keep the law? They contend with the wicked. There are only two trains running here, beloved. There's no third group. Now, third group has been sought but never found. They're sort of like the Sasquatch of theology. You can't find them. There is no third group. There's no such thing. They wind up just being forsakers of the law with good public relations departments, often accompanied, as we'll see, with Christian lingo. And I want to critique this third, this so-called third group through the lens of conservative Christian academia. And for that, again, I'm arguing there are only two groups, forsakers of the law, keepers of the law, contenders with the wicked, praisers of the wicked. There are only two groups, and you know them by their fruit. The kind of Christianity that blends in with child sacrifices, no Christianity at all. The kind of Christianity that blends in, that seeks to keep a low profile in the midst of statism is no Christianity at all. I'm not saying they may not be Christians in that, but it is not biblical Christianity. So I'm going to address a, a, a rather well-known scholar. He's not a household name, but he's well-known in the, uh, the world of academia. A guy by the name of Wayne Grudem. Anybody heard of Wayne Grudem? Oh, well, he is a household name, come to find out. Um, so you know about him. Some of you have heard him from me. <laughs> and I'm going to critique his work, Politics According to the Bible, a comprehensive resource for understanding modern political issues in light of Scripture. And I'm going to tell you the title is a bit misleading. The part about according to the Bible and in light of Scripture, as we'll see. Now, I want to be quick to say that Mr. Grudem, there's no doubt that he's a good Christian brother, that he's a dear brother in Christ. I'm not questioning his salvation. I'm not questioning that he's a devoted student of the Bible. He's among the who's who, among thought influencers within Christianity. He represents the mainstream of conservative Christian ideology today. Which is why he needs to be critiqued, because the fruit is out there that we're not doing a very good job. And so, in other words, let me say, behind these pulpits, these badly preached pulpits, are guys like Wayne Grudem. His ideology props them up. So when you see a thousand bad pastors, there's a Wayne Grudem behind him. And I'm going to, I really need to take him to the mat here and, I, and, 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 and stay with me on this. He argues in his book correctly for the necessity of Christians to be vocal about matters of morality. He asks rhetorically, if Christians are silent about such moral and ethical issues, then where will moral standards come from? That's a good question. But what he doesn't say is where Christians get their standard for morality and ethics. He tries to resolve this, saying that outside of the Bible, and I'll quote him directly, there aren't many other transcendent sources of ethics, any outside of ourselves and our own subjective feelings and consciences. What's that even mean? There aren't many other transcendent sources? So if I say, like, let me pull this out of the world of academia. If I sit here and say, I don't have many other wives besides Cindy, you all suddenly become copious note takers. Like, like, how many? What are their names? 
And I would like to ask that of Mr. Grudem. What are they? What are these other transcendent sources of ethics? What are they? Can you tell me? And because he, he doesn't offer them, yourself is not a transcendent source of ethics. Who are they? Now, if Cindy wouldn't like that, why would God like that? Why would God be cool with that? And by the way, the, from the mid-first century into the fourth century, it was largely illegal to be a Christian. It was often illegal to own or copy scripture. Now, here's what that means, is that for people, for you to have a Bible, people defied the state. This is the only reason. So when they go appealing, when they pull out Romans 13 and Titus 3 and 1 Peter 2, and they say, you know, we have to obey the state, the only reason they have those passages is because people disobeyed the state. And by the way, some of those people were burned at the stake. Some of those people were killed so that you could have a Bible so that Wayne Grudem could turn around and say it was an option. It's no option. This is the word of God and people paid a great price for it. We're not to just sacrifice it freely and say it's just one of many. This is a conservative scholar. Perhaps what Mr. Grudem is saying is that if we reject God as the standard, we're, we're destined to look at to faulty sources as our standard. But what standard does he recommend? Well, of note, and this is really note, I'm a I'm theonomic. I think most of you know that. He denies for a standard the law of God. So this is why, he says, because God's law could never change hearts. What laws change hearts? <laughs> like, I'm trying to know. Like, so when you're driving out here, and you're, I think the speed limit's 30, and you see a cop, and you're, you're rolling along 45, 48, you know, and then you see the cop, you slow down. Is it because your heart was strangely warmed? <laughs> you know, you slow down because it's a law. Now, it doesn't have anything to do with what I think about speeding tickets, but you, the law was never designed to change your heart. Your heart is not in view here. According to his standard, we should abolish all laws. And do what? Descend into absurdity and disorder. So what he suggests in his place is a, is a phrase that he coins called significant Christian influence. But how can we have so-called significant Christian influence without a clear biblical standard for it? If there are other sources for transcendent morality, how can we argue that Christianity is anything but subjective? We have to stand on the Bible as the transcendent source. Why do I have to teach this to an academic? Specifics matter. Without the revelation of God, we can't even define positive influence or significant Christian influence. Let me make that point. So you're gonna go buy a house. I'm gonna buy a house. You tell your realtor, I'm gonna buy a house. Where do you want to go? I don't know, somewhere with Christian influence. What's that? Well, positive Christian influence. Oh, okay, you know. Uh, okay, Joel Olstein, positive and strong. Someplace that will change my heart. What is that? It doesn't mean anything. Specifics matter, beloved. I think we've all watched 
with a measure of incredulity and amusement pharmaceutical commercials. You know, you see them and they're on there and they, and they trot out some disease that you might be suffering from. And, and, and they say, you might be suffering from blah, blah, blitis, you know, and, 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 and you're, and, and I say, Cindy, I might be suffering, you know, and, you know, I'm suffering from blah, blah, blitis, you know, and, 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 but this drug might just pop the trick, and you should see if you're, check with your doctor and see if this drug might be right for you, and then they just casually mention the side effects, and you've heard the side effects, you know, oh my gosh, this, this, this malady you've never even heard of, but that you might be suffering from, but the, you might, you might, if you take the drug, you might suffer from blindness, suicidal tendencies, high blood pressure, stroke. This is the treatment for a malady I've never heard, but I'm supposed to ask my neutral doctor if I should take this, this pill, you know. And lo and behold, my neutral doctor thinks I should. But the most entertaining of all the side effects I came across um, in the last month and we're just watching like Perry Mason reruns or something, and and and, uh, and I thought I misheard. I said this can't actually be a side effect. Like the, that's a side effect. Unusual urges. <laughs> I'm missing some information here. Like like unusual urges to do what? I mean that matters. You know that sort of like like I think many of you know that I have. I struggle with a bad back. And if I could take a pill and cut my pain in half, I'd be probably pretty darned interested in that pill. If, but depends, like if I'm gonna have unusual urges, like am I gonna have unusual urges to scratch my arm? I could probably do that. You know, to get my back better, I'd scratch my arm. This if it was to scratch your arm, you know, it might be less. If it was to light myself on fire, I'll stay with the bad back. You get the idea. Specifics matter. And Christian academics ought to be armed with them. The pulpit should be armed with specifics. What is significant Christian influence? I don't need a 500-page book to say it. It's the law of God, the commands of God, and the prophets of God there. Boom. That's it. So with what do we contend? Those who forsake the law, we pray, praise the wicked, but such as keep the law, contend with them. With what? With the law and the prophets. That's what we contend with them. Other games have been played, word games have been played within Christendom, things like being Christ-like. You need to be more Christ-like. Those of us who've done our share of street mission, missions have heard from other Christians saying, you need to be more Christ-like. You know? But what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to be more Christ-like? Every abortionist, every serial rapist, every drag queen is for you being more Christ-like so long as that is unauthoritative and vague. This significant Christian influence is a circle to nowhere. Mr. Grudem argues against pastors freely speaking about speaking about the interest rates of the Federal Reserve. 
Well, what about the eighth command? What about the ninth command? What about misrepresentation of money? What about exploiting one's neighbor? What about false weights and balances? That's none of your business, Jason. You shouldn't be saying anything about any of that stuff. That's not all. Well, what are, the reason we have the Federal Reserve is because of thinking like that. That's why we have, because of that flimsy ideology. When it comes to gun control, free speech, taxation, he uses the term, it seems to me, which is a fine colloquial term, but it's not okay to define academic terms. It seems to me is the motto of every despot who's ever lived. Pol Pot is cool with it seems to me as he was suffocating farmers. It seemed to him it was a good idea. That's not a good standard. And I'm not saying that Wayne Grudem is a despot, all right? I'm not, I'm not arguing that he's a despot or a tyrant, but he doesn't have any, he has no defense against them. His ideology cannot defend against him. In fact, he holds the door open for them, rolls out the red carpet. What do you think is going to come in if it's not Christ? What do you think if it's not going to be the law of God, it's going to be the law of men? I'll get back to that in a minute. It gets worse. Regarding child sacrifice on the Supreme Court, this is a little dated, but it's apt. The simple fact, quoting him directly, the simple fact is that the citizens of the U.S. have absolutely no power to overcome these rulings. It would not matter if the Congress itself and all 50 state legislatures passed laws. Listen, this is his goal. Restricting a woman's right to have an abortion because the Supreme Court has already ruled that such laws are not constitutional. The people of the nation are no longer allowed to make the decision for themselves. The Supreme Court makes such decisions for the people, and all the people are able to do is submit. If he were anywhere near that fight, he would know that actually he's just saying the same thing the pro-death people are saying. A woman's right? In certain circumstances, that's his, that's his goal. That's, that's the aim here. That's, that's significant Christian influence. Do not kill some babies in certain circumstances. That's his goal. That's not a good goal. That's not significant Christian influence. That's why we are the way we are. All we can do is submit. Now notice that he reduces the issue to be a skirmish between two different groups of people, that being the Supreme Court and the citizenry, but that's not what the fight is at all. He misses the whole thing. The issue is between right and wrong, between good and evil, between light and darkness, between truth and falsehood. Where do you get that standard but from the law of God and the commands of God? When you throw those away and you just insert in its place Christian lingo, you get that. You get nothing. You wind up arguing, which is why he is so vague and his wish list is so weak. And if you think I'm wrong, follow the pro-life movement and look at how weak. Look at the weak celebrations. I've talked to pro-lifers who've celebrated celebrated that you can kill babies in a clean facility. What if they were killing pastors in a clean facility? They celebrate this. That's what happens when you abandon the law. You got nowhere to go. 
nowhere but down. Having surrendered the authority of the Lord to two different groups of people, he's left digging through the, the dumpster of pagan ethics looking for edible scraps. The problem is, is that pagan ethics are impossibly tied to their unbelieving presupposition. A rotten egg can't be unscrambled from a good one. But if you can't see his schizophrenia, look at his declaration of impotence. He says the citizens have absolutely no power to overcome. And I can't imagine why we're, why we're losing young men in churches. With that kind of declaration of impotence, I worked, I worked as a tree trimmer for years and years. Before then, I was an iron worker. I was a carpenter. I led Bible studies at, at, with iron workers. No young man, no strong young man wants to be around that nonsense. That's drivel. All we're able to do is submit. Oh, really? Because the Bible says we could contend with them. You know, like it says over here in the Bible, those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but such as keep the law. Contend with them? We could actually contend with them. Has it ever dawned on anybody that with these abortion mills, that if we were, if one in 10 people came out one time a month who called themselves Christians, we would dominate the landscape? We would dominate the landscape, but we won't do it. In the name of significant Christian influence. All the people are able to do is submit. Those are words of praise. You get that, right? I mean, I'm not going to ask you to go to all these verses. I'll give you a couple. Uh, Psalm 24, 1 through 2. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness the world and those who dwell therein for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters over in ecclesiastes in the seventh chapter in the 13th verse consider the work of god for who can make straight what he has made crooked gone over to daniel chapter 2 daniel chapter 2 pick it up in the 20th verse blessed be the name of god forever and ever for wisdom and might are his and he changes the times and the season he removes kings and raises up kings he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding he reveals deep and dark deep and secret things he knows what's in the darkness and light dwells with him over to romans the ninth chapter, picking it up in the 19th verse. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? These are the words of the Lord. And in every case, they place ultimacy with God. By contrast, Mr. Grudem's words, of which the lion's share of conservative Christian intellectuals approve, concede ultimacy to the state and the culture, resorting to praising of the wicked inadvertently, I'm sure. Don't get me wrong, I've met them, I talked to them. 
They believe in the eventual rule of Christ. They believe in the overarching nature of it. They believe that he can rule in your little pumpkin heart. They believe all of these things, but they deny the present day reality of the rulership of Christ that governs life. That is not strong, it's not Christian, and it's not influential. Having forsaken the law as the standard, they have nowhere to go but into the arms of their pagan judges, lawgivers, kings, and messiahs. I'm going to read that again. Having forsaken the law, forsake the law, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? Back into the arms of pagan judges, lawgivers, kings, and messiahs. And I want to ask, are you tired of that? Are you sick and tired of the pagan judges, lawgivers, kings, messiahs? You're sick of the, the messianic proclamations around us? Are you sick of that? Because I am. I'm dead sick of it. I see what, there's a trail of dead babies who are sick of it. We have to repent, beloved, of this type of Christianity that's been domesticated by the culture and embrace the robust view of Scripture that seeks to obey the Lord and challenge the wickedness in our midst. Otherwise, we will continue enabling the culture on the faulty premise that they're the judges at their own trial. And there's no way around it. We will contend with the wicked or we will praise them. There are two trains running, two and two alone. The law of God, contend with the wicked, or forsake the law and praise them. Bow down to them. I don't want to bow down to them anymore. Christ died. Christ earned my worship and he earned yours. I don't want to keep bowing down to them. John Calvin is apt on this. Let them either erase these passages from the law or let them acknowledge the Lord as lawgiver, not falsely feign him to be merely a counselor. As though the law of God, I want to ask some of these guys, in fact, I do, like, like brother, like, like, is Leviticus, like, dear Abby for Christians? Like, is that Oprah for Christians, like Deuteronomy? Like, what are, what are you looking at this? This is the authoritative word of God. What Mr. Grudem proposes is a world like an Escher drawing decorated with Christian lingo. Where is that thing? There it is. It's just like this. It's got some, just put some Christian, nice Christian things in here, and there you go. Which side is up? You don't know. You can't tell. My brother can't tell. That's what you get. It bears some resemblance to reality. I mean, you have people, like people kind of things and stairs. There's some resemblance. But you can't play it out. It's impossible to apply. That's the thing that you should notice about this, is you can't apply this. It's impossible to apply. Uh, think of it like this. Let's have a uh, cross and crown. I'm gonna. Uh, uh, let's have a cross and crown church play, and we'll have we'll act out this. 
you know, let's act it out. Let's do this. We'll call it relativity, all right? Let's do it. I mean, and we'll have Hudson works with his hands and, and John works with his hands. You guys build the stage. I know you can do it. It takes some imagination, a little bit of work, but you could actually build a replica of that, but you can't play it out. It falls to the ground in a heap. This can't be, it only works in the picture. It doesn't coexist. Why are we buying that? And it's a ruinous heap that it falls in. It's not just absurd, it's obscene, it's profane. You know what's happening out here, right? Profanity against the living God. Without the clarity of scripture, it has no limiting principle and accordingly it devolves into straight nihilism. One of the most prominent, and I'm just gonna jump on this because Jason touched on it last week, uh, talking about nihilism and Frederick Nietzsche. One of, he was, he was kind of the, he's kind of the crown prince of nihilism. I'm gonna quote him directly. To those human beings who were of any concern to me, I wish suffering, desolation, sickness, ill treatment, and dignities. I wish that they should re not remain unfamiliar with profound self-contempt, the torture of self-mistrust, the wretchedness of the vanquished. I have no pity for them because I wish them the only thing that can prove today whether one is worth anything or not that one endures. Get the irony? Nietzsche's dead. He didn't endure. You get it? Like It's like right there, There's the, in his own words. The only thing that matters is if you endure. Well, Nietzsche dead. This is a man who would cover himself with excrement, sometimes eat his own excrement, went mad, had syphilis forever, was an unproductive loser. You can't build on that foundation. For that, we need clarity. We need truth. We need stability. We need consistency. Where are you going to get that? Outside of the Bible. Where are you going to get it? There's only one place to go. For that, we turn to the Word of God, the wisdom of God, the truth of God, the justice of God, the law of God, the gospel of God, the spirit of God, none of which are mutually exclusive to one another. Everything else, including vague antinomian professions of the Christian faith, falls alongside of Nietzsche into a sewage-filled cesspool. But there is one who stands I'll just draw your attention to Proverbs. Proverbs 2, verse 21 and 22. There is one who stands. And let's just one more time look at this, this imaginative catastrophe. There is one who can stand here. If you, if you say that this side is up, let's say this side is up. There's a guy walking uprightly. That's the guy who can stand. If he's walking uprightly, everybody else falls. And that's what we're seeing. Now, compare that to the proverb. For the upright will dwell in the land, and the blameless will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the earth, and the unfaithful will be uprooted from it. That's what's happening. 
That's exactly what's happening. They're coming unglued. They're falling into their own cesspool. Why would we follow them? Well, thanks be to God. He has not been silent about what it means to be upright. We don't have to guess or wonder or resort to Gnostic musing. So, uh, how do we live? That's the question, isn't it? So what do we do about this? The big so what? Or as I like to say, where do we go from here? I have five points and I'll make them brief. First of all, we live as though the law and the commands of God are legitimate and good. The law and the commands of God are legitimate and good. And if we don't like the laws of God, Again, just look at the laws of men. Just look at them. Just enjoy the law. I mean, they, they're absurd. I've traveled. Uh, I don't travel as much as I used to, but I was traveling nearly like 100,000 miles a year. I know about traveling. I, I know about passports and stuff. And like, if your passport doesn't have 90 days to expiration, like if it expires 90 days from now, you can't. You can't travel with that passport. Well, why? What's the expiration date mean? You know, I mean, can I not drink milk in my refrigerator if it expires next week? You know, can I not use my credit card if it expires in May? I mean, what is that? It's absurd. You have to have 10 empty pages on your passport to travel. I know this. I have need to know this. I almost was blocked from an international flight for not having enough pages. In fact, I had enough pages. Remember, Cindy, you were there, and there was this drunk, hungover woman, and she's and she's she's telling me, oh, you know, you don't have enough pages here, blah blah blah. And I had to know the law better than she did because they don't even know the law. I said, no, I have thirteen pages. I counted them. One, two, three. You know, thirteen is more than ten. I'm getting on the flight. You know, but shit, they don't even know their own laws. Absurd laws, why is that a law? In uh, traveling from Lusaka to uh, Lubumbashi numerous times, I've taken that, the, the, the trip up through uh, Indala to Kasumbalesha to, to Lubumbashi. And those first two, those first two, uh, those first two legs are really rough. They're about 250 miles. And one time I was traveling with Charles and he counted like 30 police stops along the way, it's only a couple hundred miles. Like, 30 police stops. Now, they weren't investigating murders. They weren't investigating rape. They were investigating to make sure we had a sticker on our car. And they were making sure that our tires were in order because we don't know what to do about our tires. And lo and behold, they have their buddies there who repair tires, you know? And their buddies are there who have stickers. Isn't it wonderful the way it all comes together? It's man's law. I've probably done hundreds of public outreaches for the gospel. I rarely see a righteous cop, rarely. I'm not looking for righteous cops. I'm looking for a cop who's just not bad, just not horrible. But why is that a surprise to us? Why is it, are we surprised that pagan lawgivers have pagan enforcers? That's a surprise. The law of God is good and legitimate. Secondly, 
Live as though the work of the wicked cannot succeed. I know it's hard to understand, it's hard to see, but we don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. We trust the word of God that says, the upright will dwell in the land and the blameless will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the earth and the unfaithful will be rooted, uprooted from it. We believe God. We get that from his word. The work of the wicked cannot succeed. Live accordingly. Invest and live accordingly. Third, live as though the work of the righteous cannot fail. Over elsewhere in the Proverbs, the hand of the diligent will what? Rule. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy will be put to forced labor. The hand of the diligent will rule. How do you know a diligent person? You do things before they need to be done. If you waited for it needing to be done, you waited too long, you missed it. Ship sailed. Fourth, live as though you can't die. Here's where I'm going to preach against myself and most everybody here. Live as though you can't die. Dead people live in a different way, of a different way of addressing life. Uh, Jean at the uh, mill has attracted a... Uh, an enemy, she has an enemy over there. This woman is especially sought out Jean. She particularly hates Jean. I mean, she hates anybody who's named by Christ, but she really has found Jean. Jean is her, is, her, is her nemesis, and she hates Jean. And they're in court the other day, and so she, she's mouthing to Jean, you're dead, Jean. You know, Jean's dead already. She died in Christ. There's nothing this woman could do to Jean. She has no power over Jean. She's dead already. She died to Christ. I was in, uh, I could tell you stories. I, I, was in, I was in Central Africa and I was going to Northern Nigeria and I was, where I was going, up in the North, the Muslims were bombing churches uh, just all the time. I mean, it was a regular occurrence right there. Um, and this is a dozen years or so ago. And I have a lot of friends in Central Africa and they were showing me articles. They were saying, you know, they're bombing people. And I've seen videos of bombings. I mean, the actual when it, like right now, bombing. And it's not sexy in any John Wayne kind of way. It's awful. And I don't want to get bombed, you know. And they were showing me these videos and I was getting ready to go to the airport. And they said, we wanted you to just say a few words before you go, you know. And, and uh, talk as long as you want, but you're flamed plane goes in three hours, you know, so um, I, I just said, he who saves his life will lose it. He who loses his life will gain it. I can't die. Thank you for your concern for me. I'm dead already. I'm a dead man. When you live as though you're dead, as though you can't die, that's when you get victories. Live as though you're dead already. Don't save your life. Don't, don't labor to, look, so much cowardice veils itself as prudence. You know that, right? So much cowardice veils itself in pretty decorated words like prudence. David found the idea of fleeing before the enemy repugnant. And so should we. You're dead already. There's nothing that can be taken from you if you're dead in Christ. 
The Apostle Paul says the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The devil doesn't care about a gospel that keeps you safe. He cares about the gospel that keeps him safe. He doesn't want the gospel that moves you to step it on him. That's the gospel that he hates. He doesn't care about your safety and your health. Devil's attacking my health. Devil doesn't care about my health. He doesn't care about me at all. He's completely indifferent from, uh, from me, but he does care about my feet if they step in his what he thinks is his business. So step in his business because those who keep the law contend with the wicked, the Bible says. You can't do that if you're trying to save your life. If you're trying to protect yourself, you can't do that. You'll find a reason why not. You'll find a good sanctified sound and reason to not do it. Call it prudence or something else. That requires risk and contention. Live as though you can't die. And finally, live as though the Lord really is our judge, our lawgiver, our king, and our savior. Live, dear beloved, as though the law and the prophets are legitimate and good. Live as though the work of the wicked cannot succeed. Live as though the work of the righteous cannot fail. Live as though you can't die. Live as though the Lord really is our judge, law giver, king, and savior. Contend with the wicked. Let's pray. Dear Lord. You contended with the wicked. Nothing about your life blended in with the wickedness of the Roman state. Nothing about your life was content to preserve your life. Even when you, even your own disciples tried to steer you away from Jerusalem which would have been to steer you away from the greatest victory. May we be really Christ-like, really following you in life and in death. Uh, we praise and we thank you and we exalt you and we acknowledge you as our lawgiver, our king, our judge, and our great savior. We pray that the rest of our time together and the time this afternoon will honor you. We're humble before you and bold before men. We pray this in the name of Jesus.